fine. Good evening, everyone. Certainly can never go wrong when you sing a song that uses the word yonder. The roll is called up yonder. That's a southern song. That's right. If you hear the uh, phrase, right place at the right time, that's common in, uh, in our society. usually means that someone has had luck to visit them in some way, or they've been placed in a very fortunate circumstance. But in a biblical context, it usually refers to God and the fact that God is in control, and He's in control of the circumstances. Consider this study that we have been uh, uh, undergoing. What if there had been no famine? What if Elimelech, Naomi's husband, had not died? What if her sons had not died? What if her sons had already been married or they refused to marry outside of the Israelites? What if her daughters-in-law had not been so supportive of Naomi? What if Ruth had stayed in Moab? What if Ruth and Naomi had not returned during the barley harvest when Boaz was harvesting his field? What if Ruth had not chosen Boaz's field to glean? What if Boaz had not treated her so nicely? What if he had not been so supportive, which would have been the custom for those days? What if Ruth had been harmed in the fields? What if she had run into danger? We know Naomi was concerned about her safety, and what if that were the case? And that would have been very real possibility in those days. What if the original kinsman redeemer, the one who was a closer relative than Boaz, in fact did decide to redeem the property and Ruth in the process? Kinsman redeemer, of course, is the legal term from Leviticus referring to the person or the individual within a family who has the obligation to redeem a relative's property, to keep that property within the uh, relative's family. What if, what if, and what if? It is often God and God alone who places the right person in the right place at the right time. Consider another story in the Old Testament. Consider a man named Mordecai, and he adopted his uncle's orphan daughter, Hadassah, and in doing so, he took on the role of a father. Hadassah was given the name Esther, and she was taken with other young women to the palace of King Xerxes to replace the deposed Queen Vashti. Mordecai had taught Esther to conduct herself with self-confidence and to be sophisticated and how to live her life correctly. And it likely came as no surprise to Mordecai that when, when Esther was selected to become queen. He knew that God was present, he knew that God was able, and he knew that God was moving in this situation and that he would use this situation for his divine purpose. So he widely, wisely counseled his adopted daughter to keep quiet about her origins from the king, to not let him know that she was actually a Jew. 
Mordecai himself held an office in the king's court, and after Esther was chosen as queen, he exposed a plot to assassinate King Xerxes. The conspirators were hanged, and Queen Esther saw to it that Mordecai's actions were recorded in the king's chronicles, although he was never given an immediate reward for his actions. But there was evil brewing in the kingdom. There was evil brewing in the shadows of the king's courts. Haman the Agite had been appointed to the highest position in the kingdom. But Mordecai refused to bow down to him. Haman became so infuriated with this and this slight of Mordecai that he devised a plan to destroy Mordecai and the entire Jewish nation in that land in the process. He devised a plan to destroy all the Jews living in the empire. The king gave Haman the authority to do this and to execute his plan, and although the king was unaware of the nationality of his beloved queen, Haman had letters sent to every governor in every province. And that directive indicated that every the, the, directed the coordination of every, the annihilation of every Jewish man, woman, and child in the empire. Mordecai learned of this plan, and he set himself down before the king's gate, and he wore sackcloth and ashes, and he was weeping and wailing loudly. And his reaction uh, garnered Esther's attention, and through a messenger, she was notified of Haman's deadly plan, his plot, his conspiracy. Together, Mordecai and Esther agreed that she should take the opportunity to reveal this plot to the king. But Queen Esther was very, very reluctant to do so. And that's where we see God at work. In Esther chapter 4 and verse 12, beginning in verse 12, when Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance from the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows? You may have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Esther requested a banquet be held only for Haman and the king, and that night the king was very distressed and he couldn't sleep, so he asked for the chronicles to be read. And in those chronicles he discovered Mordecai, that Esther had read into the chronicles. He discovered Mordecai and his exposure of the assassination attempt previously, and he found out they had never been honored. So the next morning the king asked Haman, Quote, what shall be done for the man whom the king delights to honor? Well, Haman thought the king was referring to him, but he wasn't. He was referring to Mordecai. So he suggested that a robe from the king be given, and a royal crest be placed on the head, and that individual be paraded through the city on one of the king's horses, and be escorted by one of the, top, the king's top men proclaiming, this is what is done to the man whom the king delights to honor. But much to Haman's horror, the king told Haman to do all that he had suggested except for Mordecai. He obeyed and he went home humiliated. And then that night at the banquet, Queen Esther had, the Queen Esther had arranged, she 
exposed the plot. And Esther, uh, in exposing this plot, revealed this plan to exterminate her people. And Haman was executed. He was hung on the gallows that had been built for Mordecai. And she revealed his relationship to her. And she revealed what he had done to the king. And the king promoted Haman to, or he promoted him, Mordecai, to Haman's position and gave him all of Haman's property. And Mordecai used this opportunity to send out letters throughout the kingdom in the king's name to all the Jews which gave them the right to arm and defend themselves against anyone who would do them harm or assault them. And the plan to thwart God's people was thwarted. God was in control of that situation for such a time as this. So keep that in mind because chapter 3 of the book of Ruth as well as part three to this study, ended with a bit of suspense. After an odd courtship, if you will, Ruth essentially proposed marriage to Boaz on the threshing floor in the middle of the night. But Boaz drops a bit of a bombshell. Ruth had asked Boaz to redeem her as part of his responsibility as the kinsman redeemer for the family. Boaz said he would, but there is someone who remained unnamed. There is someone who's a closer relative. There is someone who is ahead of Boaz in the redemption order. And this unnamed relative had the first right to redeem the property, the Limelech's property. And any marriage between Ruth and Boaz would have to wait. The ball was now in the other relative's court. And the narrative now moves quickly to the climax and to a resolution of this problem. The problems in chapter 1 will soon be resolved. Because the fourth chapter, where we'll spend our time tonight, brings out the divine purpose in all this. The divine purpose behind Ruth's original decision to follow Naomi and not stay in Moab and remarry there, but to follow Naomi back to Bethlehem, back to the land of the Jews and worship Naomi's God. The necessary arrangements seem to turn on this combination of an airship marriage and the laws for redeeming a relative and a relative's property. So God's plan went quickly into action. There was a legal translation, we won't read the entire uh, chapter 4, we'll hit the highlights, but there was a legal transaction that took place at at the city gate. Verse 1 says that Boaz went up to the town gate. Now this could mean that the threshing floor, he, he probably went directly from the threshing floor when he got up. This could mean that the threshing floor was at a lower altitude, than the city gate, and it might have been. However, if there was a hill and higher elevation in the city, that's probably would be a better place for his uh, threshing floor because the breeze could catch the grain for the winnowing. Rather than a geographic reference, this probably means that he was going up to the town gate as a reference being to the high authority invested 
to the, and the elders and the magistrates that usually assembled at the gate. The words going up to the gate or go up to the gate were used probably in the same sense that Israel always referred to going up to Jerusalem. The city gate in those times was the place where city business was conducted. And it was equivalent, really, to our modern city hall. The purpose of Boaz there was to fulfill his promise to Ruth, which he said, I will go and present this. I'll go present this case promptly. And he did. He did not waste any time. He went directly there, apparently from the threshing floor to the city gate. And he was a man on a mission. But unlike the secluded events of the previous chapter that took place on a threshing floor between Boaz and Ruth in the middle of the night, this takes place in the middle of the day, in the middle of the town, if you will, the town's elders. This was in a very important place for assemblies and the only proper place to conduct legal business. Boaz knew that the closer relative or this nearer kinsman would pass by. He knew that if he positioned himself strategically in view that he would be able to uh, uh, present this case. And when the unnamed relative was seated, Boaz assembled the necessary elders and he began the legal proceedings. And he took ten elders as witnesses to witness this. There may not be anything special about the number ten. Some understood it to be a perfect number. And that was the minimum number or the quorum of resident Jews that was needed in a city in later times for the erection of a synagogue. But it may also have been the usual number of witnesses required for any important legal matter, for any important transaction. We simply don't know. It does tell us, however, the importance of Boaz, how he must have been a man of high regard, of high esteem. To have ten elders assemble, tell them to sit here, and they did, indicates probably how well Boaz was regarded. If he were a scoundrel, he probably would be ignored. In verse 3, we learn for the first time that Naomi has a piece of property, probably a piece of agricultural land that belonged to Naomi, previously belonged to Elimelech, and it was probably her common share in this. But this is the first suggestion we had that Naomi had any land and it's probably had been, uh, indicates there had been some more extensive contact between, at least between Boaz and Naomi. Certainly those in the city would have known that this land existed and what the situation was here. We don't know how Naomi came to possess the land. Probably she was acting as an agent for her deceased sons who would have had the land title uh, passed to them they would have vested in this land but they too had died some commentators even believe that Elimelech had to mortgage the property because of the famine the famine that drove him and his family to Moab in any event 
the land would have reverted to Elimelech's heirs in the year of Jubilee. Thus, what Naomi was selling amounted to the use of the land for some unspecified number of years. Old Testament law was clear that a family's real property was non-transferable. You couldn't dispute that. In Israelite society, all real property, as we had mentioned before, belonged to God. It was not possible to legally purchase another family's land. But in hard times, you could sell it temporarily until it was redeemed or until the year Jubilee when it was returned. It was responsibility of the kinsman redeemer, such as Boaz and this unnamed redeemer, to redeem the property so it would stay in the family. Example, we pointed this out last week, but the example uh, in 1 Kings is when King Ahab wanted Naboth's vineyard. And Naboth replied, The Lord forbid that I should give you any inheritance of my ancestors. That's probably what Naboth was referring to. But unfortunately, King Ahab and his wife Jezebel devised a scheme to have him murdered, and they took his land. In Naomi's poverty, the land would be sold, but it must be redeemed by the kinsman redeemer so that it will not be lost to the family. In verse 4, we're told that these circumstances, that Bo, these circumstances Boaz brought to the attention, which is the NIV's reading, I believe, brought to the attention of the kinsman redeemer. The actual translation, the literal translation is, I will uncover your ear. In other words, the kinsman redeemer probably didn't know of this land and the, and the actual process that, was, that uh, Naomi was going through. He was probably unaware of this, may not even have known that he was the kinsman redeemer, but that was probably not the case because Naomi knew Boaz was a redeemer. But Boaz knew that this redeemer was closer relative than him. So after this unnamed kinsman redeemer uh, declares his intention to redeem the property... Boaz adds a condition to the transaction. Well, with the land comes Ruth. You'll have to marry Ruth. Some scholars are uncertain, but this appears to be the popular custom associated with heirship marriage, that if you redeem the property, it was the responsibility of the kinsman redeemer also to marry within that family. They shared the same legal and societal principles. And you can tell by Ruth's uh, response back in uh, chapter 3 that she understood this role. She understood what uh, Boaz's responsibility was as a kinsman, even though she was a a Moabite, Moabitess, I guess I should say. She understood this whole process. So, here we are. The kinsman redeemer says, okay, I'll redeem this property. So Boaz states, okay, it comes with a woman named Ruth. So this causes a problem, an estate problem. So the closer relative is then unwilling to act as the kinsman because it required marriage to Ruth. Now on the surface of it, it seems like acquiring this field would be a significant 
expansion of his own holdings, and it would also preserve the land in the family. But an additional wife would probably fragment and dilute his inheritance, felt that it might jeopardize his own family, and it probably means he was a man of, not a man of unlimited resources. It probably meant he didn't have the resources that maybe Boaz would have had. So at this juncture in verse 7, then, when the kinsman redeemer says, I can't redeem it, you do it, Boaz, the uh, legal background to uh, carry out this transaction is provided. The author of this book provides us with this background, this uh, process that had become obsolete, apparently, by his own day. Because in uh, verse 7 of chapter 4, in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. Presumably a considerable length of time had passed between the events described and the present um, edition of this text, but that does not mean it was 500 years earlier. Words are just appropriate then when Samuel, as many believe, wrote the book of Ruth, as it could have been any other time. The time of this authorship, we know, was during the or we know when this took place was during the period of the judges. And we know that Samuel anointed David to be king after Saul, so that the custom previously referred to was probably prevalent during the judges, maybe about a century or so before um, the book of Ruth was written. In earlier times can mean 100 years, just as it can mean 500 years. We don't really don't know, but we know that the previous practice was you consummated this legal transaction by exchanging the sandal. Some even believe that verse 7 was an annotation. It was added to the text later. That may be a matter of debate. Regardless, this arrangement was ratified by this strange sandal ceremony. And this very uniqueness of the process is probably the reason why it was used, because it drew, it drew attention to the intention of the uh, parties to this transaction. Presumably, he handed the sandal to Boaz, indicating this transfer of the right of redemption. And I can imagine Boaz holding the sandal in the air saying, all right, you've seen, I'm redeeming this property, and all the witnesses see this. Probably when the ceremony ended, Boaz probably gave him his sandal back. Don't want him to have just one sandal. But the two men agreed on the appropriate course of action here. And then Boaz addresses the assembled group and summarizes this agreement. Now, you've all seen this now. You, you, you understand this. Everybody saw this. I've redeemed this property. He was first in line. He's refused. Now, I'm redeeming it. And all there witnessed it. And they agreed. 
And this assembly of the elders, the ten elders that he had chosen, maybe others who were there, responded with a blessing. First for Ruth, then for Boaz. They invoked the Lord, the Lord God, Yahweh, to make her like Rachel and Leah, who built up the house of Israel. They also prayed that the family of Ruth and Boaz would be like that of Perez. Specifically, they recalled that Perez, who in fact was an ancestor to Boaz, he was the son of Judah by Tamar in Genesis 38. So in other words, they compare Boaz and Ruth to another unusual example that God had blessed abundantly. That appears mentioning Judah here and his shameful action in producing Perez with the prostitute Tamar might have been inappropriate, but the significant lies in the fact probably that Tamar was a foreigner. She was a Canaanite, a non-Israelite, just like Ruth, the Moabitess. Tamar and Ruth are both mentioned in the genealogy of Christ in the New Testament, in Matthew chapter 1. Thus the blessings of the elders in that day were fully realized in time. So then we move forward to the marriage of, and the birth of the child. In one short, concise verse, in verse 13, every problem presented in chapter 1 meets a solution. Ruth remarries. God grants an immediate pregnancy to Ruth. And a son is born. A very distinct contrast, if you will, to Ruth's ten barren years in Moab. But after this verse, Boaz leaves center stage, if you will, and neither is Ruth the center figure, central figure anymore because Naomi once again comes back to the foreground. The women... Verse 14, mentioned in verse 14, they heard Naomi's complaint against God back in chapter 1 when she talked about how God was against her and she said, don't call me pleasant or or call me Mara, bitter. Don't call me pleasant. God's against me. The same women who heard her in chapter 1 now return to acknowledge God as the source of her blessings. The women praise and celebrate the fulfillment of God's covenant and his love and his blessings for Naomi. When he enumerates, when they enumerate those blessings, they mention first her new grandson. And this grandson will sustain her in her old age. But the, the newborn baby, the newborn grandson, is not the greatest of Naomi's blessings. It's kind of a beautiful irony, if you will, that they speak next of her daughter-in-law, Ruth. She stood by quietly, and she heard Naomi bitterly complaining about her lot in life. Back in chapter 1, yet Ruth's faithfulness and her exceptional character and her excellent way of living and what she did to to, uh, provide for her mother-in-law and going out into a very possibly a very dangerous situation to glean. Her excellent character 
caused Naomi's circumstances to be reversed, and Naomi's complaints were answered. And it's interesting that in such a small book, a tender book in some, in some instances, one in which the author chose his words very carefully, the word love is re- reserved for the climax to this story to describe Ruth's feelings for her mother-in-law. And what an astounding assertion that the women provide when they say that, that Ruth is better for you than seven sons. In a book in which the birth of a son had been an all-consuming need, Naomi, or Ruth had been better for Naomi than seven sons in their praise. And moreover, Naomi, in effect, she had her son in her grandson, Obed, who would become the grandfather of David. In verse 16, verse 16 contains an interesting word that kind of forms a bracket in this whole book. Because back in chapter 1, verse 5, and this kind of rounds out the book, but back in uh, verse, uh, chapter 1 of verse 5, the word referring, that refers to Naomi and her sons, both Malan and Killian also died, and Naomi was left out without her two sons. But in verse 16, that very same word is used to refer to the child. Naomi takes the child into her arms. The same word referring to her sons previously, she takes this child into her arms. Literally transferred lad. And she's blessed. She's come full circle from sons who died to taking a child in her arms who was now living. The author's taken us from the point of Naomi being bereaved to Naomi now holding a new child, the son of Ruth and Boaz. Naomi was finally part of a family again, a loving, fulfilling role that she could now play. And in a sense, the baby symbolized it all. And Naomi gave herself over to caring for him. All the problems, all the difficulties, all the problems that that we read about to begin in chapter 1, all those problems have now been resolved. And we have this happy conclusion. But before we get to the, the ending genealogy, before we get to the very words that tell us why this is important, The story ends with a very terse sentence. Kind of an unexpected disclosure. The child was named Obed, who was none other than the father of Jesse, who was the father of David. The son born in very somewhat bizarre circumstances to a Moabite woman became the grandfather of Israel's greatest king. Ruth had been taken as a wife. The ancient blessings of fruitfulness are invoked. Naomi's bitterness turns to joy. And her grandson is to become the grandfather himself of King David. 
In all these events, the Lord's hidden providence is revealed. And of course, the gospel writer Matthew, who was most taken with Jewish concerns, did not fail to see the significance of Ruth and Tamar and the lineage of the Messiah in Matthew chapter 1. This closing genealogy, the last four or five verses, begin in verse 18. Many believe this was uh, a later edition, probably added later, maybe an appendix. doesn't mean it's secondary, and it may have been added later. It does serve as proof that the book probably was written later because it mentions David, names David, who came three generations later, unless it's prophetic. But it seems to form a closure, along with the birth of Obed, and it forms a very important part of this story, because this ties it up to why this is important. This is a happy ending to the story of Naomi, the sorrowful widow who had returned empty, who returned bitter, who returned without any hope, without any reason for joy. She had been filled beyond her expectations. In Psalm 126, the psalmist wrote, Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. This closing genealogy shifts the focus then back from Naomi to Boaz. But it kind of fulfills a greater uh, purpose This genealogy begins with Perez once again. The one mentioned here, the one from Genesis chapter 38, the one born from Judah, and Tamar, the prostitute. Like Ruth, Tamar had become an ancestor of David in an unexpected way. And even for New Testament readers... David is not the end of God's provisions. David is not the end of the lineage. The covenant bride would come later. But in its own time, in her own time, and in her her right place, Ruth's journey had reached this divinely appointed goal. God's purposes had been accomplished And he accomplished these purposes through the lives of ordinary individuals. These are not royalty. These are not the upper crust of society. Although Elimelech and Naomi were probably well known, they weren't the ruling class. But a life committed to service has no insignificant turns. All life becomes sacred then. And the point is this, and I think we mentioned this the first Uh, night of the study, that from a mere human standpoint, Ruth would not appear to be the person. Ruth, of all people, does not appear to be the one that would be the one in direct lineage of the Messiah. Ruth, of all people, does not appear to be the one who would be standing in the right place at the right time. Who would have expected Ruth 
of all people, to be the direct, in the direct lineage of the Messiah, the Christ, the chosen one, the anointed one, the Son of God. From a human standpoint, probably doesn't make any sense, but fortunately God doesn't deal in our human terms. In His majesty, and His grace, and His wisdom, and His knowledge, and His um, care for us, foreshadow what life will be someday, but it's far beyond what we can comprehend now, here and now. In the dramatic events of this book, God's in the process of founding a family, the children among the children of Israel that would bring about the birth of the Christ, the Messiah. That birth that would bring redemption to all mankind, all who would receive him. Because this family, just like As he mentioned, Perez and Judah, this family was a blending of Jew and non-Jew. Ruth the Moabitess, Boaz the Jew. And the marriage union of the Jew and the marriage union of the Gentile resulted in a lineage that produced the Messiah, the Christ. And as we mentioned last week, it was the death of that Messiah and the blood that Jesus shed on the cross that that, uh, formed the union of the Jew and the Gentile through the blood, reconciled to Christ, reconciled to God through the Messiah, Jesus Christ. It is the marriage union of the Jew and the Gentile that produced the Messiah whose blood reconciled the uh, Jew and the Gentile through the cross. So what's the conclusion to all this? What do we take from this book? What do we take from this study? Well, really, Ruth, Boaz, Naomi, even though they play central parts of this story, they're not the real story of the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth is this story. The book is a book about God, and it's his plan for redemption. His plan from Ruth to redemption to the Redeemer. You see, the Redeemer, Jesus Christ, is the recipient of all these blessings, all these things that occurred before. The actions of Ruth point directly to the actions of Jesus on the cross. That's the story of the book of Ruth. As we sing this song, we'll stand here in just a moment. If you haven't had a chance to partake of the Lord's Supper, you can do so. And of course, if anyone has a need in any way, we can uh, help you with that as well. Let's stand, please.